Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 33 in our series on American history. In the 32nd podcast, we began to look at the first of two significant revolutions that were affecting people throughout the United States of America. We started out looking at the transportation revolution, where we looked at the impact of Robert Fulton's steamboats, the development of eventually what would be called America's canal system, all the way through looking at the impact of the railroads as well, where we ended in our 32nd podcast. In our 33rd that we're starting today, we're going to continue our conversation with the development, a continuing development of the railroad to the point that it appeared as though that people's ability to tell time was suddenly off. Remember that day was simply when the sun was up and night was when the sun was down. People had a sense of predictability as the year progressed as when the sun would set and when the sun would rise. But now it seems as though when people are traveling at higher rates of speed than humans have ever traveled before, and well, love to tell about it, that they would find that when leaving, for example, New York City, at a time of year, say, when the sun was pretty much down for good by 6 p.m., that if they left at 3 p.m. from New York City, they would expect the sun to go down once again around 6 o'clock. However, if they were on a higher speed rail, taking them directly west, they would find that once 6 o'clock rolls around, the sun isn't as low into the sky as it normally would be back in New York City. What's going on here? Why is our sudden understanding of this concept of time that was developed in the late Middle Ages suddenly gone awry? Well, again, it's because humans now were traveling over the surface of the earth faster than they ever had before. That's the reason why it'd be no surprise that shortly after the impact of the railroad would, was realized, the United States and most of the rest of the world would eventually adopt the system today we call time zones, which were developed and finally confirmed in November of 1889. By developing time zones, that helps insulate our understanding of time as we travel from west to east or east to west. Yes, as we eventually start traipsing along the surface of the earth by taking our bodies completely off of the earth, and going and flying through the sky, literally by the key word they're flying, would humans for the first time actually suffer from things called jet lag because of their lack of ability initially to adjust their internal clocks to the time of the country in another part of the world that they flew to. Please know, though, that, again, it's not common knowledge. Sometimes people are surprised by it. But you can travel from the northern part of Minnesota straight down to its equivalent in South America. And, of course, you're not going to suffer any jet lag because you're going north-south, 
not east-west. So that's where we began to develop these time zones where within the United States, for example, we have four major ones starting from the east coast all the way through to the Pacific time out in the west coast, California, Oregon, and the corresponding states. Please know, though, that even through to today, not all countries have adopted the time zones, even though, for example, the Soviet Union at its peak once stemmed or spanned, excuse me, an astonishing 13 time zones, countries like China to this day still do not have time zones, even though their country goes through or lays over what would normally be five different time zones. But anywhere you're at in China, the watches and the clocks are always the same. So that was one way that we certainly had to readjust our understanding of time. The second would be a popular phrase that would come up with the invention of the railroad, and that would be, Psst, don't hang around with the kids from the wrong side of the tracks. Oh, you don't want to date so-and-so. Why? Well, because he or she is from the wrong side of the tracks. What would be the wrong side of the tracks? Or was this just a play on words? The fact of the matter is there really would develop what would become known as the wrong side of the tracks. This is easiest to understand if you want to pause the podcast now and get a Google Maps out to look at a, a map of the United States. You don't have to zoom in any further than that. But there were two wrong sides of the tracks. And you might say, wait a minute, a set of railroad tracks only has two sides. What are you talking about, Chris? Well, it all depends upon the direction you're going. In other words, if you want to just follow closely here, if you're looking at a map or if you're able to visualize this, a set of railroad tracks that went north to south, say from Wisconsin down to southern Illinois, the wrong side of the tracks would be the east side. The west side would be considered the better side of the tracks. If the railroad track were to travel from western Iowa directly east through Illinois, the wrong side of the tracks is the south end. The north side of the tracks would be considered to be the better side. So what's the common denominator between the north side of the tracks and the west side of the tracks? And why are the other two, south and east, holding the worst end of the stick, shall we say? And really, in this case, it doesn't have as much to do with the railroad itself as it does with America's predominant wind pattern in the United that covers the United States of America, in fact, most of North, of, uh, North American continent. The fact of the matter is the predominant wind pattern is from west to east and from north to south. Not that you don't have exceptions to that rule but it is the predominant wind pattern that meteorologists have established decades ago in our studying and tracking of the weather currents and patterns that affect the United States. Therefore, because of the predominant wind pattern, those massive plumes that those steam locomotives would belch out with that black and gray smoke, with the wind pattern, it would be carried to the south or to the east, depending upon how the railroad tracks were aligned. Don't think again that this is just a play on words to the point of hanging around with people on the wrong side of the tracks. The wrong side of the tracks, again, the east or the south side, property values would actually be lower for the, for the same type or equivalent home is on the other side of the tracks. The other, the uh, dirtier, 
east and south side of the tracks would tend to be dirtier, of course, the uh, soot, layers of soot, especially in times of drought. Fires sometimes would ensue on the wrong side of the tracks because, again, with the embers and the hot uh, flakes coming from the coal and wood uh, that is being burned sometimes would be belched out and would be the cause of a, a brush fire, once again, predominantly on the wrong side of the tracks. What the railroad industry also found is as we started to lay more and more tracks throughout the United States to an eventual whopping 140,000 miles of rail, carrying 40 tons of goods per person annually throughout the United States as the railroad industry neared its peak, according to a uh, study done by Time Magazine in the April 10th, 2017 issue on page 40, it expands on just how massive the railroad industry is and how much it is an integral part of our daily lives to the point that the congestions did present significant problems. Rail fatalities would be an issue from the beginning and still with us all the way through modern times. Part of the other issue was something that is not commonly known to an outsider who has no knowledge of the railroad industry. Please know that the railroad industry itself is one of the areas of my expertise that I give public lectures on. I'm also a model railroader who has studied and has yet another need to study the railroad industry as in-depth as I have. So in order to be able to replicate more realistic models on my 10-foot by 14-foot layout, the fact of the matter is, is we don't think twice about leaving our home state and traveling to a nearby city or other state, right? You might say, well, what would I worry about? Well, can you imagine? Imagine living in your home state. Let's just pick the state of Iowa. And, and imagine that you wanted to travel to New York City. Can you imagine traveling? Now, again, you're going to be traveling on the, uh, in your own car. And it had nothing to do with the railroad for this example. But you're traveling along the highways, and you get off the highways in Illinois and then eventually in Indiana and Ohio and Pennsylvania in order to get gas or to get food or just to pull over to rest. Can you imagine driving your car, having to get your guidebook out because now you're in Illinois territory or Indiana territory? And when you're driving there, red doesn't mean stop. Red means go. Green means pause. Yellow means stop. And to add to your confusion, there's more than just those three colors. A red and a green means something in Ohio. Very different than red and green on together means in Illinois. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be to drive your car through the states when each one of them has a different signal system to control America's roadways? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the case with America's railroads. I have studied this again extensively. I have guides downstairs and old graphs where people that would work on the railroads as trainees and all these railroads that are now long gone, the Baltimore and Ohio and the Chesapeake and Ohio, and some that are still with us today, the Burlington Northern, the CSX and the Santa Fe, all of these railroads use a slightly different signal system. Oh no, the bulbs are the same. The lenses are the same. They're all running on electricity. 
but the lights that are on mean different things to different railroads. And to add to that confusion, if you finally got it down, that green over red meant proceed at the same speed your several thousand ton locomotive is going. But you get into another territory where there's blinking green over red. That means entirely something else. If you'd like to see a sad or read about a sad real case scenario, look up the Chicago Rock Island accident in October of 2003. When for the first time, the Rock Island passenger line in its history had a major accident where a locomotive, an entire train following, had to switch parallel tracks. It's a minor move. On that infamous Saturday in October of 2003, when the engineer driving the locomotive saw the lights signal ahead of him and understood it to mean that he could continue on at his 68 miles an hour that that several thousand ton locomotive was traveling or train was traveling north. He did not understand that that one particular signal below meant he was going to switch tracks. Believe it or not, at 68 miles an hour, he was below the actual speed limit of 71 miles an hour. I know this line by the back of my hand because I traveled on it for 10 years. I was supposed to be on that exact train that left the Beverly area in northern Illinois at roughly 8.30 in the morning on that Saturday. As my hand was on the door with my briefcase in the other hand, my dean called me to say, Chris, I'm glad I caught you. Today's meeting got canceled. So enjoy your Saturday. We'll, we'll see you on Monday. And that's the reason I wasn't on the train. Otherwise, I would have been speaking from experience being a part of that accident, or I would have been one of the casualties. But a 68-mile-an-hour train with 250 tons just in each locomotive itself, switching tracks doesn't happen. That is way too much weight with far too much momentum to for one set of tracks to for the locomotive to leave the tracks it was on to do a casual glide to the left to get onto the other set of tracks. Switching tracks is done all of the time for every railroad, but switching tracks always requires the locomotive to slow down significantly so that the flanges can handle the extra massive amount of pressure against it as those tons want to move from one set of tracks to the other. As a result of this misunderstanding, the engineer kept his train going at 68 miles an hour north, and it was not until it was way too late to do anything about it that he looked down from his windshield and saw that he was indeed about to switch tracks just to a set on his left. The locomotive being the weight that it is, nothing was going to stop it. That locomotive went through that switch like there was no problem at all but it tore up the switch at it as it did so. Still traveling, although slowing down from 68 miles an hour significantly, 
The engineer attempted to slow the train down to no avail. As the train cars behind him, the passenger cars, which are less than half of his weight, toppled behind him that by the time all of the cars settled, it literally looked like King Kong had come through the area and was collecting passenger cars and throwing them in a bucket. The damage was beyond extensive, as well as the number of injuries and sadly the number of deaths. Why did the engineer misread the signal system? Because he didn't. The train line that the railroad corporation that he worked for prior to working for the Rock Island, he read that as meaning clear at the existing speed straight ahead. He did not understand or forgot, despite his training, that on the Rock Island system, that same signal pattern meant you're switching tracks, bring your train down to what should be no faster than 10 miles an hour. Again, a thousand plus ton train that needed to travel no more than 10 miles an hour was doing 65 miles an hour. And hence the reason why it looked like a disaster zone as it was because of the misreading of the signal system. I know what you're thinking, or at least I think I know. What is the holdup here? What's going on? Why can't the entire railroad industry within the United States simply align their signal systems so that every type of signal pattern tells the exact same thing? Isn't that, quote unquote, an easy fix? It depends upon how you define easy. On conditions of being anonymous, I've had two railroad lawyers share with me from different railroad companies and different law firms that the numbers are roughly the same. For an entire American railroad industry signal conversion, the estimated costs are roughly $5 billion that each railroad would have to pitch in in order to convert the signal system. Because remember that with the, if the CSX likes a nine pattern signal system, but on the other hand, Burlington Northern or the Norfolk Southern only likes or uses a six signal. There's going to be massive cash outlays to figure out what system to use. And then each railroad have to modify all of its physical structures, not to mention retraining all of its employees. That's just part of what is estimated to be a $5 billion signal conversion. But wait a minute, you say. Tell me that those train accidents that happen year in and year out don't also cost the railroads and legal fees. Sure they do. Each year, it's estimated at roughly $12 million. Ladies and gentlemen, do the math. $12 million a year or $5 billion for a signal conversion. I think you know why it's not done. Then where, you might ask, does the government step in? 
why wouldn't the role, where does the role of government come in? Well, remember, ladies and gentlemen, in the United States, we are a laissez-faire system for as much as possible. In other words, the government keeps its hands off until it is proven that it is no longer able to do so. Remember, the more intrusive our federal or state government is, the more our corporate owners could possibly decide to pick up anchor and open up their corporation overseas. There's always that risk. When a corporation moves overseas, of course, most of the time, none of those jobs are going to move with it. People here are the ones that are unemployed, whereas people in the new country they move to suddenly find gainful employment. So for that reason, there would be a, there, as the industrial revolution and, and transportation revolution began to take hold, obviously the debate set, set in as to how involved should the federal government be. And the consensus was then not that far different than the consensus is now in the 21st century, that it is probably better off for state government intervention to be far more likely and more beneficial which is the current case, as here in the 21st century. Because we have 50 individual states, however, you also then sadly can understand that there's even going to be more difficulty in attempting to try to establish an entire railroad signal conversion system. So that's just, again, a take then, therefore, on the major ways and improvements in transportation from that massive steam engine on the back of a ship called a paddle boat, as well as putting that massive engine on a set of rails in what would eventually be called the railroad. Well, is it no surprise, therefore, that as industrialism begins to set in, there would be the emergence and growth of the major cities. Coastal and port cities that would have closest access to the water would obviously be the most beneficial. Initially, these small cities would be no more than one to two miles across. And that's why so many of the cities, too, would have the same suffixes, such as bergs and poli, B-U-R-G-H or just B-U-R-G-H-S. Another common suffix, poli, P-O-L-I-S. We derive those terms from the Middle and Ancient World. A burg, whether it be Pittsburgh or any other city that has burg as a suffix, would be equivalent to a small walled fortress city or town from the old Middle Ages feudal estates. A poli is the Greek term meaning urban or city-state, which is where we get Minneapolis, Indianapolis. That's where we get the term poli, or poli is where we also get the term uh, pol uh, politics from as well as metropolitan. These small cities, as industrialism began to set in, oftentimes found themselves trying to catch up with the negative effects of industrialism. As the industry started to move into crowded, congested living areas, it was no surprise that with the lack of industry standards, the amount of people dying from disease, and various of various forms of pollution, of course, would skyrocket. When the state and federal governments would begin to start making their presence felt, is when we would start getting in or seeing the establishment of what we would call zoning laws and construction codes. Zoning laws is the reason why, if you're listening to the podcast, this podcast from your house, or as I'm recording from my house, to my, my neighbors to the east and west of me are two private individual homes, as is Mike across the street from me and his wife. None of us can sell our house 
to a McDonald's corporation who then throws a tears down the house and sets up a McDonald's drive through here. Why? Because we're zoned residential. No business can move in. No corporation can move in. You might say, wait a minute. What about freedom of ownership of land to do what you want with? Yes, that is true. But not when it negatively affects the property values and the living quality of life of our neighbors. That's why, again, we're zoned residential. You then can have zoned business, which means it's zoned for retail establishment. You also then have industrial zones where you expect to see big, heavy equipment, and you expect to hear it as well. That's the reason these zoning laws are to keep us safe, not only physically, physically, but also to be able to maintain the integrity of our predictable property values. Those, again, would be the establishment of zoning laws. Can they be switched? Of course they can and change, and it's done every year, sometimes with negative side effects to people that weren't aware of the change until it's too late. But by and large, it is there for the establishment of predictability of property values throughout the United States. Construction codes will also start stepping in at this time as well. Construction codes may seem like they're really no big deal. That wouldn't be of much of interest to us common folk listening to this podcast, but construction codes also protects us as well. If, for example, or a quick example is in our own individual homes, if you have the ability, if you have, if you have an unfinished basement, you can go downstairs of individual residential homes and you'll find that your fresh water comes in in the exact opposite direction your sewage water leaves the house. Our fresh water comes in from one direction, generally at a higher elevation than our sewage water will leave our house. And that's purposely done to eliminate what they call cross-contamination. This is part of the reason why, for example, when I traveled to third world countries around around the world, I was given by my doctors strict orders that I was to drink bottled water only, that I was not to eat any food that would be rinsed with water. I love salads. I prefer a salad almost every night with dinner. But when I would travel to some of these countries, I would never have a salad. I would never eat seafood. Because again, it's not that these places were bad or, you know, despite the negative term of third world countries, it's not that people were not healthy there. But their immune systems, again, were used to the bacteria in their water, whereas mine was not. What's more is you can ask any construction owner, who builds houses for a living, believe me, it'd be a lot cheaper, though, they'd say, if we could lay our sewage pipes and our water pipes right next to one another, why build two huge trenches on opposite sides of the property? Because we don't want our sewage pipes and our freshwater pipes anywhere near one another. We want that huge separation. As a result, this adds costs, though, to our buildings. How can it not? But what happens is in some countries that do not have these construction codes, they'll lay the sewage pipe and the water pipe several feet away from one another, but they'll be a lot closer. If this particular country is in an earthquake zone that is notorious for having small tremor earthquakes, those pipes, as they age, can start having uh, fissures, hairline cracks. Again, because they're well below the surface of the earth, 
people aren't going to readily see if the freshwater pipes are beginning to leak water and the sewage pipes are beginning to leak sewage. And as the areas next to it, that the dry earth between it begins to get saturated with clean and dirty water, you now have cross-contamination. And while some may shudder that, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I live where I live because I don't have to worry about that. As a former home inspector from the state of Illinois, I can't tell you the number of times I've walked into people's homes and saw that they were cross-contaminating their own water, literally. No, it wasn't with anything coming out of the toilet. They were cross-contaminating themselves from their washing machine. Where it happens is the washing machine, they take that hose and they drain it into the wash basin. But then the wash basin sink, which usually has, of course, a faucet with it, oftentimes people will put hoses on the ends of the faucet so that they can rinse things out because it's kind of a slop sink. But then they'll take that hose and they leave it in the bottom of the sink when they're not using it. And now the washing machine empties that dirty water into the sink and fills that hose up with dirty water. Sure, when you turn your water on, you're rinsing that out. But how long do you have to rinse it before you get every bit of that bacteria out of there? And if you want to really get grossed out, take a quick YouTube video. It can demonstrate just how fast bacteria can travel through water, you'd never cross-contaminate again. That's the reason why in the United States, our sinks are required to have faucets that are well above the actual top edge of the sink, so that there is no way that the faucet can ever come into contact with dirty water in the sink. So that's just, again, a couple of quick examples of these uh, zoning laws and construction codes that are going to be established within the United States. When we come back, we're going to take a brief look at how cities now begin to develop in, these new, in this new age of zoning laws and codes. And then we're going to begin taking a look at this brand new age also, paralleling the transportation age, and that is nothing but the Industrial Revolution. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. If you like what we listened today, what you listened to today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.